We're in a series called Who Are You? Who Are You? And it's about rediscovering our true purpose and our true identity in our union with Jesus Christ. There's a lot of ways people can ask, who are you? They can ask it. Most of us ask that question indirectly. Hey, what do you do for a living? Or what are you reading these days? Maybe they just look at your bookshelf and decide on their own who you are. What podcasts are you listening to? What TV shows are you into? Tell me about your family. How long you've been dating? How long you've been married? Um, where do you live? Now, do you live in the city or? Oh, you don't. Okay. You said Chicago, but you really meant Chicago land. So, anyway. Um, what'd you do over the weekend? Who'd you vote for? Who are you? We're always trying to figure that out. We're always trying to feel each other out, size each other up, size ourselves up in relationship to people we're talking to. And all of us wish that when some people ask us that question, whether directly or indirectly, we had the best answer for them. And not just a fake answer, but a real answer, like a soulful and rich answer that I have a self and my, I matter and, and, and uh, and I have meaning. There's purpose and goodness to my life. I'm not just a strand of preferences strung together. I'm not just uh, proving myself. I, I actually um, have a self, and there's nothing left to prove. Sorry. My, mic my microphone is talking back to me. Sometimes it does, like my kids. Um, so um, we're exploring in this series, in some ways, how union with Christ is the answer to that question. And it takes so much of the pressure off when people ask us that question directly or indirectly. Who are you? Well, I'm united with Jesus Christ. And that means I'm his treasure. That means I share in his fullness. That means I share in his victory. That means that I receive all of his benefits and he takes all of my burdens. Union with Christ affects everything both now and in the future for our life. In Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, which was an ancient letter written by a church planter pastor who was helping people understand the way of Jesus in the ancient world in Asia Minor. It's really helpful for us, too, because our world is so similar to theirs. My prayer for all of us is that, is that we'd say yes to this union with Christ during this series. We'd say yes in a new way, yes in a fresh way. Maybe it's the first time you've ever considered uh, that, that Jesus Christ offers himself to be united with you forever. And in that case, I hope that in this series, you say yes to him for the first time. Now, maybe you haven't thought about it a lot. You've thought about maybe, maybe Jesus died for your sins, and maybe that means you're going to heaven. But you haven't thought about how your whole life and your whole identity is wrapped up in the best way possible with his identity. And that he gives you everything you need for your identity. My hope is that you come away from this series with something good and right to take away with you. Um, because when you say yes to your union with Christ, you're saying yes to freedom. You're saying yes to grace. You're saying yes to peace. You're taking off the part of your identity that doesn't belong. <laughs> all right? And I'm praying that for all of you. Because all of you have this dangle, dongle in your life. <laughs> Just go with it. All right, now we're coming to Ephesians 5. You know, the first half of Ephesians talks a lot about who you are. 
And we could get tricked into thinking that it's only about our souls. That it's only about maybe it's our minds, maybe it's a head game. Is union with Christ a head game to you? Is Jesus a disembodied, God-like figure that helps your life better? Maybe helps you think better? Ephesians 5 is really clear that union with Christ has a great deal to do with our bodies. It has a great deal to do with our bodies. Because our bodies matter a great deal to God. Our bodies are gifts from God. And Paul's got insight into what that means for how we live, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our voices, what we do with our thinking. Our life in the body matters to God. You know, since the Enlightenment, we've split up. We've split up body and, and, and soul, or even mind, or even thinking. And this is very much like the ancient world. As we'll talk about splitting of the self so we can have one existence, the spiritual existence, and then we can have the non-spiritual existence. We can live in categories. And do, so do you live in categories? Do you have separate selves? Over here I live this way. Over here I live this way. I think like this. I live like this. What Ephesians 5 is helping us to do and what union with Christ is helping us to do is to close that gap, bring them together. Because that is what it means to be united with Christ. He unites himself not just with us spiritually. He unites with, him, uh, with us physically as well. Not just now, but for eternity. So what does this mean? We're going to look at what this means. We get a clue, actually, in the first couple verses of our text. Here's the clue. When Paul says this. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ gave himself up for us in, in love for God and love for neighbor. And this was not a spiritual offering, although it was, it was spiritual, but it was not only spiritual. This is a profoundly physical act as well. He let his body be sacrificed to give the very life of God to save us from our sins so that our life in the body could reflect his glory. It was a sacrificial story. It was a sacrificial act. And if we're united with Christ, we are co-crucified with him. As Paul says in Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, the resurrection life of Christ is alive in me. That Christ has shown on me, when he's united himself with me, he actually gives me his resurrection. That means that my body will share in his resurrection. I will stand in my flesh and praise God in my flesh. As one spiritual writer says, when I brush my teeth, I am dust polishing dust. And yet my teeth have an eternal future in God's kingdom. This is a great mystery. <laughs> when Jesus Christ unites himself with us, he's saving not only our souls, but our bodies as well. He loves us completely, thoroughly, in an integrated way. And... Uh, we then share in his pattern. We become an imitator of him. 
we give up our bodies out of love for neighbor and out of praise to God. Everything we do with our body matters in eternity. This is a great mystery, is it not? Now, this was a scandalous teaching for Asia Minor in first century. Oh, they did not see it this way at all. Uh, it was common sense wisdom in the ancient world that human bodies were gross. Compared with the beauty of the soul, compared with the, with the brilliance of the mind, at least some of the minds, the ancients in many ways despised the human body and its fluids and its failings and its functions, sort of a necessary evil, a necessary packaging. Something's got to house the soul. It's sort of an old bag carrying around some treasures. I recently got some shoes from Amazon, and, um, and the shoes came and opened up the box, and I took out my new running shoes. Like, finally, um, some fresh shoes to give me some good support for my next run. Well, then what was I going to do with the box? Hey, kids, you want the box? I'm throwing it out anyway. Maybe you want to use it to cut out, like, swords. Or maybe you want to stick your Play-Doh in it until it dries out. <laughs> Whatever you want to do with the box, it doesn't matter. I'm throwing it. It's use it or, or, or lose it. Use it or toss it. Cardboard box. This is how the ancients saw the human body. The, the, the more valuable thing was what was inside the human body, the soul, the mind. But the human body itself, it's like keep or toss. And when in doubt, throw it out. And they did. Um, put it in the recycling bin. Here's what they did with the body. They found spiritual meaning in losing control. And so at these ancient pagan festivals, in the temples dotting, the, in dotting Asia Minor, they would lose control. They would drink, as Paul talks about, you know, the debauchery. They, they would drink and drink until they lost inhibition. So they, in some ways, had to disconnect from their bodies. They would engage in temple prostitution. And they would seek a higher experience, something higher than the body. Whoa, sorry about that. Why did they do that? Well, because the body was seen as a hindrance to spiritual experiences. Do you ever think that way? Do we ever think that way? There was lots and lots of sexual experimentation in the ancient world. Because of this view, use it or lose it. If it's useful, great. If it's not, throw it out. So there's sexual experimentation with men, women, and children, consensual and non-consensual. There's an ancient phrase like, oh yeah, we have our wives for keeping house, and then we have our concubines for this, and then we have our mistresses for pleasure. And it was like, oh yeah, that's how things are done. This is the ancient view. And um, people with the plague, people who were unwanted, unwanted babies, especially female babies, um, widows past their prime, fend for yourselves. When in doubt, throw it out. It's not useful anymore. We found our use. You have no use. Goodbye. And so people would leave their babies to die on the streets of Rome. They would abandon their family members who had the plague. 
when someone died, they didn't give them a proper burial, they'd burn them, they'd, they'd find some way to just discard the body. Because it's, it's just a cardboard box, for goodness sakes. We don't make a fuss over it unless it's useful. And then if it's not useful, throw it out. Um, do we see it this way in our world? Do you need a fresh body? Just open up Tinder and swipe right. Um, you need a recycling bin for a body that's no good to you anymore? Just sign them up for the low-cost, state-controlled nursing home and wave goodbye. They don't recognize you anyway. Or, or, or shoot them dead. No one cares. Society doesn't care. Their bodies don't matter. Or just get a procedure and turn that unwanted fetus into medical waste for a few hundred dollars. The cardboard box view of the body is popular again today. And this is what Paul is referencing in verses 11 and 12. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Meaning that the cardboard box view of the human body is dangerous to human flourishing. It is dangerous to human flourishing. It's a use or toss approach to our bodies that is an affront to the person who created them, who loves them, who intends an eternal future for them. So Paul's going to do two things in our text. First, he will correct the cardboard box way of life in the body. And then secondly, he will commend to us to shine the light of Christ through our human flesh. Can you imagine doing that? He's going to warn us against seeing the body and using the body and treating the bodies, our own or someone else's, as a cardboard box or maybe an old iPhone or piece of technology. It's like, throw that one out, get the new one. Don't do that. We are to shine the light of Christ in our bodies and we are to seek the glory of others, whether their bodies are useful to us or not. So... Let's look at the three stages of the cardboard box slash old technology view of the human body. It's first in how we think about the body, secondly in how we talk about the body, and thirdly the stories that we tell with our bodies. Okay, let's look at how we think about the body. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now, I want to give special attention to the word covetousness because many of us don't understand what this word means. It's one of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment given to the people of God. And uh, the Tenth Commandment was, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's employees, your neighbor's property. All other commandments... Um, were about action, but the 10th commandment was about the imagination, the thought, the mind, how we think about our, neighbors, our neighbor, our neighbor's property, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's husband, by extension, which is quietly demanding what God has not given you. Quiet, covetousness is quietly demanding what God has not given you. I want that. I must have that. And if I get a chance, I'll take that. That is covetousness. It's how we think. It's how we orient ourselves to other bodies. And um, 
It's the internal demand to possess other bodies. Do you have an internal demand to possess other bodies? What God has not given you. Maybe it's an emotional connection that is not yours to have. A romance that you desire but does not belong to you. Maybe we begin to think about what would it be like to run away with that person? What it would be like to have a tryst with that person, to be loved by them, to use them. I must have more than God has supplied me with. This is the heart of covetousness. And for many of us, this is the battle line right here. Maybe everything else in our life looks different, but in our minds, in our imaginations, we are fighting a battle of covetousness. We are fighting a battle. We want to use other bodies. We want other people to use our body. This is the battle line, and we need all of the spiritual support we can. We need all the prayer support that we can. We need all of the discipleship support that we can to fight this battle because this is where the battle begins. It is in our minds. It's how we think about other bodies. As we've said before, that when we lust after another person's body, the internal demand is saying, I already own that. I already own that body. I already have possession of that. Even in my mind... I want and must have, even in an imagination sort of way, that body, that person, that romance. When Jesus Christ looked on his bride, he said, this is my body. He said, I will give myself. I will not be a taker. I will be a giver with my body because I value and am seeking the glory of that other body that I love, this bride who is so much more than a body. This is the first line of defense for us, and we must fight it. We need to be warned against thinking wrongly about the body. As Paul says, don't let people deceive you with, with empty words. Don't be tempted to go down this road. Don't begin to think about people as discardable or usable or playthings. Don't think of yourself that way. And I contend, my brothers and sisters, to not think of yourselves or anyone else in this way. Do not think of people who you don't like, who, are, who feel uh, disgusting to you. Don't treat them like toxic waste. Don't ignore them. And the people that are attracted to you, don't, don't treat them as means to an end, as a way to feel more of a woman or a way to feel more of a, as a man. Don't even let yourself go there in your imagination. Invite Jesus into your imaginations so you can heal that way of thinking. That's the battle for many of us. Let us confess our sin as such and receive support. This is the promise of union with Christ, that we can change our thinking. Secondly, it's how we speak about the body. We must be careful how we speak about the body. Verse 4 says this, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. It's out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, in the context of this passage, it's best to understood as filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking are not just general immature speech, although they all are that, but they're about the body. They're degrading the body and, and, its, and its sexuality and its gender. We, we must not degrade the body with our speech. We must not talk about people as if they're discardable. We must not come up with nicknames for ourselves or others that would, that would make us into subhuman things that we may, we may use or not use, use or discard. 
Language can normalize, friends. Language can normalize what is not normal. So how are you using language to describe bodies, to describe your sexuality or that of another's, to describe gender? How we use our language shapes reality and some kind, sometimes can misshape against reality. Um, how do you speak of bodies that you find repulsive? Language can, we can start using animal names for people. We can start saying things like cockroaches or rats or other awful ways of describing the human being to, to dehumanize people so that we can discard them and marginalize them. And that must not happen in our speech. Those of us who have been united with Christ no longer regard people according to the flesh, just according to what they see. They regard people as eternal creatures made in the image of God. So we don't animalize our language in relationship to the people of God, people who are made in his image. For others of us, this is the battle line. And we must repent of ways that we have used our language to wrongly describe our bodies or that of another. Thirdly, we must tell the right story with our bodies. And some of us are telling the wrong story with our bodies. Verses 5 and 6 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, so what happens, my friends? when we think, speak, and act as if bodies are discardable? What happens when we think and speak and act as if bodies are like cardboard boxes or, or, a, or a piece of technology that's either interesting or not interesting that can be either used or tossed out? Um, so different ways of doing this. One is to be, as Paul says, sexually immoral. And this is when... We have sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Or pornography, <laughs> hooking up, using and being used. Or maybe we play around the edges in some way. Um, we flirt with someone we shouldn't be flirting with. We initiate an online connection with someone. Um, and we're kind of, it's unclear whether this is going to turn into something romantic or sexual finding ways of connecting which are um, covert, or maybe, as Paul says, impure, and this is serving our appetites. Rather than our appetites serving us and serving Christ, our appetites become the Lord and the Master, and they, and they, begin, they begin to tell us what to do, and we begin to serve our appetite, or we serve the appetite of somebody else. This is telling the wrong story with our bodies. It's, it's impurity. It degrades us. It degrades, it degrades other people that we're connecting with. We're just saying with our bodies, we're telling the story. It's use it or lose it. I was born. I'm going to die. My body does not have an eternal purpose except experience some pleasure along the way. Use it or lose it. Keep or toss. We're being warned against telling the story. Warned. Paul talks about the wrath of God here and in Romans 1. And in Romans 1, he be, he's very clear. What does the wrath of God feel like? It feels like nothing. He gives them over. It feels like nothing. 
It feels like God is going, oh, is, if that's what you want, if that's what you are absolutely devoting yourself to, thy will be done. It's one of the most chilling texts in all of scripture because of God saying, I'm not going to force you to tell the story that I'm telling through Christ. If you must tell the story that you want to tell, which is keep your talks, I'm not going to make you, not going to override your will. The kingdom of God is made up of people who use their bodies to tell the story, the beautiful, incredible story of the gospel, my life for yours, a fragrant offering to God and love for other people. But God won't force us to tell that story. He's not going to force us into the kingdom of God. In another letter to, to a church that struggled with this, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or against her own body. So this is serious. This is like a big deal. It's a bigger deal than, than we're told that it is. There's something heavy about it. There's something serious about it. And if we persist in it without repentance... Paul warns us that we won't share in the kingdom of God, and we just have to take him seriously. God made us male and female so we could bear his image in the world, bear the image with our bodies. Um, he wanted our flesh to shine the brilliant, beautiful light of Christ, both now and in the future when we see him face to face. Um, where there's no more marriage anymore, actually, but where the ultimate marriage has happened, so you can either point towards that marriage through a covenant relationship that God has designed, permanent and life-giving and beautiful, or you can point to that day through celibacy, holy celibacy, not singleness. Take that word out of your vocabulary. That is not true. Celibacy is when we are called to point towards the kingdom of God where there will be no marriage anymore, where we're saying Christ is enough. I'm skipping the appetizer, but I am getting the entree in heaven. So we can tell that story instead of the story of the cardboard box, the story of the old iPhone we don't need anymore. To take God's gifts and misuse them is an affront to the creator. If we're united with Jesus Christ in baptism, we have been marked as Christ's own forever. And it is an affront. Christ has bonded himself with us. And when we take ourselves into sexual immorality, we take him with us. If we're telling that story, let's stop this morning. Let's not discard people. Let's not use people. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ is one where bodies are not destined for the recycling bin. They're destined for resurrection. Destined for resurrection. Human bodies are God's creation. And our flesh is made to stand in the presence of God both now and in eternity. When we, when we give ourselves up in love, we tell God's story. And that story is good. And that story is beautiful. And that story is... is, is um, is true. And it's good for human flourishing. As Paul says in, in the text here, um, he says that, um, that the works of light, um, let's see here, is, is good and right and true, verse 9. And, and people who do that try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So what, did this, what impact did this text have on the original readers? What impact did this text have in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, and all the other places that got this letter? A lot of people got this letter. I'll tell you what, it revolutionized the Roman Empire. 
Because from the inside out, the people of God took a different view and started living a different story that was good and beautiful and true. Um, so, for instance, they, they, um, uh, they started sharing their tables, but they stopped sharing their beds. As one historian said, they share their tables, but not their beds. What's going on? That means that they extended hospitality to people they wouldn't normally otherwise notice. They took in people who were smelly, people who society said was discardable, and they're like, no, come on into our house. Come to the table. Come eat both on Sundays and in our homes. We're going to make a space for you. We're going to provide medical care for you. We're going to take you in. They went around, they collected the babies that were left out to die. And they took them in, they, they adopted them, and they treated them as holy, eternal creatures. No, your body matters. Doesn't necessarily mean it's useful to society or profitable, but it matters to God. That means it matters to us because we bear God's image. So they're taking in widows, taking in orphans. When the plague um, ran through the Roman Empire, people abandoned their family members except the Church of Jesus Christ adopted their family members and took them in and even became imitators of God, giving up their life. I'm going to provide medical care to these people who are dying of the plague, even if it means that I take the plague into my own body. They'll survive, and in many cases, I will not. That's what happened among the Church of Jesus Christ when they received the life-giving truth that they were not cardboard boxes and their neighbors were not cardboard boxes, that they were made in the image of God. Something good and true and beautiful and fruitful began to come from the church and this turned the Roman Empire inside out and it led to human flourishing, led to the creation of hospitals and, and cemeteries. Cemeteries! Christians would take care of the first cemeteries. Bring us those bodies. Yes, they've died, but we're going to treat them as God has treated them. We're going to give them a proper burial because these bodies were created. They're not accidents. They're created and um, we're going to take care of them. This, this protected children against sexual abuse or lifelong slavery. It elevated the status of women. It led to more education and more health. This was a building. This high view of the human body was a high tide that lifted all ships. It's good for society. It's good for culture to have this kind of a view of the human body, this kind of a view of the human person. Does Chicago have this view of the human person? Sometimes it's hard to know because the bodies we don't care about are hidden from us. But there are thousands of bodies around Chicago that are warehoused in nursing homes, in care facilities, people never visiting them at all. I remember visiting a parishioner who was in a rehab facility. And the looks of longings that I, when I, all I would do is make eye contact with people who are inside rooms at this rehab facility and their, their faces said, please stop and talk with me. Don't keep going. Uh, are you a visitor? Are you here for me? No one goes to see them anymore because they're not of use to anybody. Bodies are discarded in Chicago. Bodies are trafficked in Chicago. Bodies are warehoused in Chicago because our view of the human body is so much like the view in Asia Minor. You're interesting to me or you're not. What would it look like for us to take a different view at Emmanuel Anglican Church? We take the Ephesian view. We take the Jesus view, which is that our bodies shine the light of Christ here on earth. Let's look at verse 8. 
For at one time you were darkness. It doesn't say you were in darkness. One, one, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And verse 13 says this. We can look at that now too. But when anything is exposed by the light, we can think about Christ here, the original light. It becomes visible, meaning it's exposed, but in a good way. For verse 14, for if anything that becomes visible is light. Okay, it doesn't say if anything that becomes visible is shamed or tossed out. No, is light. Something res- some resurrection happens here. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a promise of the gospel. Once you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. It's a description of those who have been united with Jesus Christ. If you've been united with Jesus Christ, at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Your nature has changed. Our nature has changed from the inside out. The, the very light of Christ, the resurrection light of Christ, the kingdom of God, the beauty of heaven shines not just through our souls, not just through our minds, but through our flesh. Not just through healthy flesh, not just through young, attractive flesh, but through broken and diseased flesh or helpless flesh. In our strengths and in our weaknesses, we can actually manifest the beautiful light of Christ. And our calling, as verse 9 says, is, to, dis- is um, to manifest what is good and right and true. And as verse 10 says, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing life to the Lord. That's our calling. That's what it means to shine the light of Christ. To love God and neighbor with our bodies. And as we do, to shine Christ's light, to reveal what's true and good and beautiful to Chicago. When we open up our table... And hospitality. And when we spend time with the least of these, when we, when we stop at those rehab centers and hospitals and we have an inefficient conversation with someone because they're beautiful in the image of God, when we don't share our beds out of reverence for Christ and out of reverence for our neighbors that we want to take into our beds, when we do these things, we're telling the true story that God has given himself to us in Jesus Christ out of, uh, out of love for God and neighbor. We're not cardboard boxes that were eternal creatures made in God's image. Some of us feel excited about this. All of us doing this together here in Chicago, manifesting the light of Christ with our bodies. And some of us feel condemned by this. Maybe you've had an abortion. Uh, Or maybe you've encouraged one. You've made one happen. And you feel judged for that now. And you feel remorse for that now. You feel very sad. I want you to know I hear you and I don't condemn you. And neither does Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you're addicted to pornography. You're using pornography. Or Or you're hooking up. And you feel shame for that. You feel heavy about that. 
And I want you to know I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to speak life to you and hope to you. Or maybe you're here and you've been callous to people who are poor, callous to people who smell, callous to people who are no use to you. And I want you to know I don't condemn you for the callousness. I'm here to speak hope and life to you. What hope is there for us who have treated ourselves or someone else as if they were a cardboard box or an iPhone, either interesting and new, the newest model, or an old discardable model? What hope is there for us? Because all of us are broken. All of us are sexually broken. All of us are physically broken. And all of us are broken in our way we think and act towards other people. We've treated ourselves as cardboard boxes. We've treated other people as cardboard boxes, either kind of interesting and usable and a plaything, or something that can be put in the recycling bin quietly and politely. And we all need this hope. We all need this truth. Let's read verse 13 again. But when anything, but when anything is exposed by the light, when a light shines on it, when the light of Christ shines on you, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, not words of condemnation, words of hope. Wake, O sleeper. Hey, wake up. Wake up. Jesus Christ himself is shining his beautiful light on you. He loves you. He takes delight in you. He cares for you. He wants you to wake up and become who you are. He wants to resurrect you. He wants to resurrect every part of you. It's a beautiful description of the gospel. The light of Christ comes searching for us. We've hidden, like Adam and Eve, we've hidden in the bushes. We've hidden from the consequences. We've hidden from ourselves. We've even emotionally disconnected to, to uh, in some ways, deal with the carnage that we've taken on in our life. We're afraid of exposure. We're afraid we'll be condemned. We're afraid we'll be left out. And the very thing we fear is our salvation itself. It's God himself coming to look for us. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? There you are. I found you. I found you. I'm here to shine on you. Oh, I love you. I care for you. There's hope for you. You are made to live with me in my kingdom forever. You're made to shine that kingdom now. You can live in that kingdom now. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to shine on you. That's why I'm exposing what's keeping you hidden so you won't be hidden anymore, so you won't be dead anymore. I don't want you to sleep anymore. If you're not a Christian, if you've never been united with Christ, it's something to consider. Not just something to consider. It's an eternally a weighty decision. Because Jesus Christ cares about you, and what you do with your body matters to him. He wants you in his kingdom. He offers to unite himself with you. To, uh, he, he offers to unite himself with you, and you can say yes to that union even now. You can say yes, Jesus. Shine on me, shine on me, and show me who I am, and help me live the kingdom of God. Help me live heaven. Help me live your love in this world. I want to care for the discard people who think they're discardable. I want to um, I want to tell the story of the gospel through my sexuality, and he'll say yes to you. You can ask him to shine on you this morning, and he will. And maybe you are a Christian, and maybe you are aware of a way that you have stopped telling the story of the gospel. You can say, Jesus, shine on me afresh 
and restore to me the joy of my salvation. Tell me who I am in you. Help me start thinking rightly, speaking rightly, and living rightly in my body. And he will answer that prayer. Go to a prayer minister. In either case, whether you're becoming a Christian for the first time or whether you're saying yes to Jesus again of who you really are in Christ, go to a prayer minister. Seek out a leader. Find me after church, and I will pray for you. We will pray for you. The people of God are here to remind you who you are. Don't presume on the mercy of God. Fall on the mercy of God. Don't presume on God's mercy. Well, God will forgive this anyway. He takes it seriously what you do with your body. Fall on his mercy. Be the first one in line to the cross. Jesus, Savior, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Today is the day for that prayer. This Lent is the Lent for that prayer. This is the time to turn around. If the Lord is speaking to you through the word of God, respond. Don't, don't callous your heart. Don't turn away. Say yes. Turn away from callousness. Turn away from idolatry. Turn away from coveting other bodies. Turn towards Jesus Christ. He'll shine on you, his very life. And this pleasing sacrifice, this pleasing offering to God and neighbor will shine on you. And you then become, can become an imitator of God. If you want more teaching on this, I fully recommend a great sermon series called Fully Alive. It's put out by Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton. If you look up their podcast or go to their website, churchres.org, you can listen to these teachings on identity, sexuality, and life in the body. Now let's look finally at verses um, 18 through 20. Half of, second half of verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. What does this look like? Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, always giving thanks and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is that when we come to worship, it's not just a gathering of souls. We are with our very bodies coming here into this space, and we are using our voices and using our bodies to tell the true story of the gospel as we kneel, as we stand up, as we lift our hearts in worship and in prayer. So I want to encourage you, my dear brothers and sisters, to with all your heart and all your soul and all your body and with your voice and with everything in you, let every cell praise the name of Jesus for the rest of this worship service. When we pray in the prayers of the people, pray with all your heart. When we sing, sing with all your heart. And bring your bodies to this table to receive mercy, to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, to say yes to him, yes to his grace, yes to eternally living in the kingdom of God. Because when we're united with Christ, we're not either useful to him or not. We're his sons and daughters, and we don't throw out sons and daughters. We cherish them, we nurture them, we give our lives for them, and that's exactly what he's done for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.